All right. Um, I'm also going to do our first Bible reading today. So that is from Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 7. So Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Uh, you can look in the Bibles there or up on the screen. Verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Got my stopwatch. Well, good morning. My name's Ian. In Jesus' uh, message to the seven uh, churches and in his particular his message to the Ephesian believers, we see Jesus commend the congregation for their tenacity, for their truth, and for their loyalty. Tenacities are acknowledged by their hard work and perseverance. And Jesus rightly commends them for their long-term integrity amidst high pressure from universal emperor worship, the pervasive worship of the gods, especially the goddess Artemis, whose temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was in Ephesus and was the focus of the city. It was also a place of godlessness in terms of unrestrained sexual immorality. Also, the Christians suffered financial hardship because of deliberate economic discrimination against them. They were seen by the people as traitors. And in a culture of frequent, in the calendar, citywide festivities which worshipped the gods, the believers there would have felt social outcasts and very alone. They're also commended for their truth. Jesus commends them for their doctrinal orthodoxy and for their spiritual discernment. They've not compromised the truth of the gospel, nor themselves. They haven't done it because they remain faithful. They haven't flirted with idolatry or false teaching, however attractively it may have been packaged. Instead, they've actually examined those claims in the light of proven apostolic teaching and have not hesitated to declare them to be false and intolerable. Also, their loyalty. The oppression that they have experienced is a direct consequence of their ongoing loyalty to Jesus. And yet their commitment to Christ is still as strong as ever. They have not grown weary. So consequently, Jesus' rebuke and warning is a bit of a shock. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now it's natural to understand, even as we've already heard, to refer to when we hear the words the love you had at first or your first love to think that that is referred to their love for Jesus which seems to have faded. Uh, 
However, the word which is used for forsaken does not refer to a waning, but to a conscious severing or renunciation. It's the word which is used or translated letting go. It's used for divorce and it's used when Jesus gave up his spirit. So it isn't a fading, it's a deliberate severance. So they are not rebuked for allowing their love to wane, but for abandoning it. So why does Jesus commend them for their unshaken loyalty to him and yet simultaneously rebuke them for abandoning the love they had at first? Well, when we look at verses 4 and 5, it's significant that their loss of the love you had at first is equated with their need to return to the things you did at first. Jesus does not describe their repentance in terms of a renewed love for him, but in terms of a renewed ministry for him. Jesus' rebuke seems to refer to a vital labour of love, or what we call a love ministry, that previously had defined them, but which now they had abandoned. In the Gospels, Jesus emphasised the needs of disciples to be fruitful, and also he emphasised the, cons the consequences of fruitfulness. These stand in stark contrast to those of fruitlessness. John the Baptist and Jesus each declared, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And in Jesus' parable of the bags of gold in Matthew 25, the fruitful servants are rewarded with the invitation to come and share in your master's happiness. The unfruitful servant, however, is declared to be worthless and is banished into the out of darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus' use of darkness not only denotes the absence of light, but the absence of every blessing that's implied by your master's happiness. In other parables, Jesus uses light and lamp to refer to a witness that glorifies God. Thus, these seven churches are referred to as seven lampstands, which is a description reminiscent of the menorah, the seven lamped lampstand that stood before the Lord's presence in the tabernacle and the temple. Because of his faithlessness, the worthless, unfruitful servant in Matthew 25 was banished from the blessings of his master's presence. Significantly, Jesus warns the Ephesians, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Ever since its birth some 40 years before, the Ephesian church had endured unceasing torments from their neighbours. Tacitus, the Roman proconsul in Asia in 110 AD, wrote of the Ephesian Christians that they hated the human race and were hated by the society in which they lived. Although the Ephesian congregation had persevered in their faith and had not grown weary, they appear to have abandoned their initial enthusiastic, outward-looking gospel witness in favour of what might be called a grim, defensive orthodoxy. You may recall in the Old Testament how Jonah, commanded to go and evangelise the people of Nineveh, took off in the other direction because he despised the people of Nineveh and the last thing he wanted was to evangelise them. The Ephesian Christians seem also to have abandoned the evangelism of their neighbours because they had simply come to loathe them. I recall Michael Rader speaking here at Christchurch some years ago, who was a former missionary in Pakistan, saying about how he'd asked Christians in Pakistan why they had stopped evangelising their Islamic neighbours. And the reply was, 
because we just don't like them. Although still strongly committed to Jesus as Lord and to apostolic teaching, the light or the witness of the Ephesian congregation now seemed to shine only within their light-proof congregational fortress in a similar way to the buried treasure of the worthless servant. And so I'm forced to conclude that the love you had at first, or the deeds you had at first, was a sharing of the gospel, evangelism, a ministry that once was dearest to their hearts, but which they had following years of persecution consciously abandoned. And yet evangelism is God's chief work. When Jesus was asked, what must we do to do the works of God? Jesus required, the work of God is this, believe in the one whom he has sent. If God's chief work is bringing sinners into a saving faith in Jesus Christ, that work will also be his first love. If it is true of God, should it not also be true of the people such as you and me? Jesus warns the Ephesians and all other congregations, ancient and modern, that the consequences of abandoning this first love are catastrophic because it's the equivalent of renouncing our identity and our function in Christ as the light of the world. No wonder Christ, uh, Paul exclaimed, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I've gone over time. Uh, I'm going to read our second Bible reading uh, for us today, which is Revelation 22, uh, sorry, Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 to 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Well, good morning. My name is Peter Mayrick. I've got the pleasure of reading, looking at this short little passage about Smyrna. We've gone north from Ephesus. Um, let's have a look at Smyrna to try and understand a bit of context. Uh, from my reading, I understand that Smyrna was up there near the coast. Uh, it was um, this, where the city of Izmir now is in modern Turkey. Smyrna had been destroyed many years before, but by the first century, it had been rebuilt and was now a proud city of something like 200, 250,000 people. It was a proud city with modern uh, uh, facilities, including its sports stadium that it was extremely proud of. It invited the whole of the Roman world to come and do something like the modern Olympics um, in Smyrna. They were very proud. In fact, Smyrna described itself on its coins as the first of Asia in beauty and size. They boasted a special relationship also with Rome and with the emperor. You see, many years before, they built a temple to Rome, and in 23 BC, they won the right against a whole lot of other cities to build another temple, a temple to Emperor Tiberius. So this is a proud, modern, 
prosperous city. And you ask, so why was it so bad for the Christians? Well, not only did Smyrna have a temple to Rome and to Caesar, but a law was passed which made, uh, required all people to worship Caesar as God. Something, of course, that the Jews and the Christians would find intolerable, uh, idolatrous and blasphemous. Now, the Jews, who were numerous and very well connected, were exempted from this law by paying the temple tax. And you'd think that the Christians would be too, right? Well, the, the, the leaders of the Smyrna synagogue didn't think so. They told the Roman rulers... These Christians, they're not really Jews. They shouldn't be exempt from the law. And of course they told them they're not exempt from the law and they're not honouring Caesar as God. They're breaking the law. No doubt they hoped that they would curry favour with the Roman rulers and maybe even wipe out the Christian tribe. Rather than calling this brotherly love you'll see in verse 9, Jesus refers to this divisive behaviour as the work of Satan. But the consequences of the accusations were very, very real. You see, as a Smyrna Christian, I had a clear decision. Do I break the first commandment and honour Caesar as God, go to the temple, sprinkle my incense into the fire in front of the bust of Caesar and worship him as God? Or do I proclaim Jesus Christ as my Lord and live with the consequences? Consequences that we read Jesus is very, very aware of. Look at it. They might arrest me for breaking the law. They might fine me. They certainly will disparage me. They might put me in jail. They might even kill me. But at the very best, I would become an outcast. You see, no one neither Roman nor Jew, wanted to trust me, the Christian, or do any business with me, be associated with me. So we pulled away from business. They wouldn't trade with me. And so in this very wealthy, prosperous city, the Christians would become poor. They'd be poverty-stricken. And so, folks, life was pretty bleak for the Christians. And it's into this context that Jesus writes this little letter to the Smyrna church that we read. What he says is, he is the first and the last. Have confidence in him because he's the Lord of all time. Have confidence in him because he knows everything. He is the one who knows everything. He's the one who died and yet he rose again. He's all powerful, even more powerful than, than death. And to the persecuted church, Jesus says, I know, I understand. And friends, he did know, didn't he? He who was tested in the desert, he who was slandered by the chief priests, he who was arrested, who was whipped and was beaten and ultimately crucified, Christ knows, he understands. Friends, Christ is the Lord who conquered death, do not be afraid, he says, not even of death, because he promises life. Do you remember what he said to Nicodemus? Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. His promise is everlasting life. 
This is the victor's crown we read about in verse 10. It's not the garland wreath that was won at the Olympics. No, the victor here wins in the game of life, which Christ won at the cross, didn't he? This is what it is to be rich, verse 9, to have life and to have it to the full. Indeed, verse 11, he says, they will not even be hurt by the second death. Jesus' message to the persecuted church is magnificent. I know. I understand. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Not even death. Because, friends, Christ wins. So, verse 10, be faithful. Hold on. Persevere. That's his message. So I want to ask you, what do we take out of this? What might you take out of this? Do you lose respect at all because you're a Christian? Do you lose opportunities or miss opportunities because you proclaim Christ? Do you get left out in social occasions, in business, because you proclaim Jesus as Lord? I wonder. Jesus understands, friends. Is there anything that tests you from trusting Jesus alone as Lord? Is there anything that causes you to compromise or deprioritise Christ as Lord? I mean, maybe success does. Maybe family, maybe money, maybe just living well today. Maybe respect. Will we ever be tested to the point of civil disobedience? I don't know. But there are people in our world who are, aren't there? Now, do you notice what Christ doesn't say? He doesn't say, I will stop the persecution. He doesn't say, I promise you success. No, friends, he promises victory in the main race, the race of life. Christ, who is the first and is the last, he's more powerful than anything we could think of. He says to you and me, I know, I understand. He understands our life. He understands our challenges. He even understands our temptations. And he says, do not be afraid. Do not fear. You see, he promises the real prize, life everlasting, and he died to make that promise. So brothers and sisters, he says to you and me, be faithful, hold on, trust him, just like our forebearers did in Smyrna. Amen. My name is Gabby and I'm going to be reading from the third passage today, from verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. 
Likewise, you have also you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give you some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Well, good morning. Um, look, I'm the youngest member of the group. Uh, I've just aged well, that's all. Uh, the letter to the church at Pergamon. Imagine if you did receive a letter from the Lord Jesus Christ. You'd be very apprehensive about opening it and then reading what followed. Any letter from the Lord Jesus Christ is to be taken with the utmost of seriousness. What was Pergamum like? Well, it was a bit like some of those other cities we've already heard about. It was, uh, however, a very special city in that part of the world. It was the centre of uh, Roman government in uh, that uh, Asian province. Uh, it was also uh, the place where uh, emperor was worshipped uh, more than uh, anywhere else in that part of the world. It was the centre of emperor worship. Uh, this is why Jesus says, uh, look, I, I know where you dwell. Uh, it, it's, it's the throne of Satan. It's where the emperor has his great control and is worshipped uh, so much, so much is paid to him. Uh, where you dwell is where Satan dwells. I think there's a bit of empathy that comes out, if you like to see it that way, when Jesus says, I, I, know, I know where you dwell, I know where you dwell. It, it's a difficult place. It, it, like, like those other places, it, it must have been extremely difficult to live as a Christian. You could, uh, you could suffer socially because you didn't participate in local worship of the, of the deities uh, that your neighbours had. Uh, socially difficult, economically difficult, legally difficult. And of course there could be the problem if in fact you could be charged with uh, not treating Caesar the way he should be treated, then you could be guilty of treason, you could lose your life. Now in the midst of that, um, we have this description, however, of the one who has written the letter, Jesus. He's the one, what, a, what an extraordinary description, he's the one who has the double-edged sword protruding from his mouth. I've actually seen portrayals of that, the pictures of it, 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 it looks gross. Uh, literally, however, the, 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 the double-edged sword, this sharp double-edged sword, uh, is actually a sharp double-mouthed sword. It, it's the word for mouth. I, I take it that the sword, you see, could, could cut right, could cut left, could open wounds to the right like a mouth, could open wounds to the left like a mouth. The sharp, double-edged sword. Oh, dear, dear me. I, I take it that what we're supposed to understand from this is this, this Jesus is the one who can cut you to ribbons, cut you to pieces because he knows every, every intimate detail of you. You cannot hide anything from Jesus. All, all, all is known to him. And because all is known to him, he speaks with authority and with justice as he judges. And with his sword, as it were, he can judge the world with his mouth. So the sharp, double-edged sword comes from his mouth. Well, nonetheless, he has some good things to say about them. You've 
You've not abandoned your faith in me. Even, even in those times when there was persecution and, and Antipas, my faithful servant. Yeah, faithful didn't, didn't stop him from being uh, killed. Yeah, in the days of Antipas, when there was the threat of death hanging very closely over you, 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 you held on to me. Your faith in me did not wane. It, it did not wane. But it does have some serious things to hold against them. There are things, in a sense, which Jesus could hold against his people any time, any place, but in different forms. You, you hold, you grab hold of that teaching which Balaam, an Old Testament character, you hold to that teaching which in the end means you, you're okay with certain forms of sexual immorality. You're, perhaps you're okay with just thinking impurely. Perhaps you're okay with just participating with the temple prostitutes because what does it really matter? They're just temple prostitutes. Who knows what it was? We do pray that perhaps God does not have a word for us, any of us today, in terms of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is a, is a blasphemous behaviour and thought or deed against God himself. And, and, and eating foods offered to idols, what's that all about? Well, who knows exactly what they did, but maybe they regarded it as, look, just to be social, surely it's okay to join in a a little prayer or a little toast to this God or that God or some other God. The gods were rampant in Pergamon. The, the temple to Caesar was extraordinarily huge and, 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 and well attended. And, you know, maybe just to fit in with society a little bit, it wouldn't hurt a little to go along with some of what your neighbours went along with, just to fit in. Who knows? Who knows? Teaching in the Nicolaitans, we really don't know what that amounted to. Maybe the same sort of thing. Of course, in our world, we'd say, oh, look, none of us are idol worshippers in any sense. None of us participate in food offered to idols. <laughs> With all of us, from time to time, we, we displace God from his throne and put ourselves in his place. We, we love prestige. We love honour. We love money. We love power. We love ourselves. And Jesus, however, has a remedy for this, and it's simple whether it's sexual immorality and thought and deed, whether it's in fact this love of self which replaces God, the word is simple, repent. And there's a warning, if you do not repent, I, this is extraordinary, if you, if you do not repent, I will come to you with my sharp double-edged sword and fight you, and I will come quickly. Perhaps it's a warning that if you do not repent, then in fact your lives will be cut short. I will see to that. Perhaps that's what is being said. Then finally, as with the other letters, it comes to this little end bit. It's a slight change when you go from letter 3 to letter 4, 5 and 6 and 7. But nonetheless, here it is. He who has an ear, anybody got an ear? Well, let him hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not just to this church. All the letters are for all the churches and for all who read these letters today. He has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, he who endures to the end, he will not give up in his or her allegiance to Christ. Two things will be given them. Two things will be given them. The hidden manna, a reference to that white, small, round powder. However, it was supplied, supplied by God to sustain his people in the wilderness. I give the hidden manna and I give a white pebble 
It's not a stone. In the New Testament, the word for pebble occurs only twice, and it's in this spot. It's a pebble, not a stone. Now, this, this here, that's a stone, and you can't really hide it in your hand. But this, however, here is a white pebble. I give you a white pebble, and on it, on the white pebble, there is a new name for you, for he who endures. A new name that is only known to he who holds the pebble on which it is written. Very interestingly, these two things, the manner and the hidden stone, the, the, what's written on the stone, have these descriptions for both. They are both hidden. That's interesting. What is going on here? They are both white, white for purity, spotless, beautiful. They are both round. They are both small, manner very, very small. The commentators argue a great deal about certainly the second one. I don't think the second one, the small white pebble, has got anything to do with the Roman Empire. That's my own view. With respect to the first, the hidden manner. The hidden manner? Why is it hidden? Well, it's certainly hidden. God's provision for his people, his sustenance of his people, is hidden by those who attack his people. Those who there were attacking the those who were faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ in the city of Pergamum. What those who attacked them did not understand, did not know was that God sustains his people then but will sustain them forever in the world to come no matter what happens. No matter what happens, no matter how powerful Caesar thinks he might be, God sustains those who endure to the end. He is nutritious towards them. Hidden maybe from understanding for those today that that will be the future, but it is indeed the truth. And with respect to the new name written on the white pebble, a new status, a new status I give you. He and she for he and she who overcomes. A new status before God. A new name that in fact is hidden, it's protected, it can never be abused, it can never be attacked and cursed because God is your protector. You are precious in his sight if you endure to the end. He hides you. He hides us today, but in fulfilment he hides us tomorrow. He provides for those who overcome. He protects forever those who overcome. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, it's Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 to 29. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make, this, make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, 
Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations, that one will rule with the, sorry, that one will rule them with an iron scepter, and will dash them to pieces like potteries. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, one of the silliest sayings that I know uh, is the saying, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Surely that's the whole purpose of cake, is to have it and eat it too. And I know it's risky talking about cake just before morning tea, uh, so I think a far better saying uh, would be, you can't be a Christian church and tolerate sin. I'm starting a movement here this morning uh, that that saying catches on. You can't be a Christian church and tolerate sin. Thyatira was a church tolerating sin. We start in verse 18. These are the words of the Son of God. You see, for Thyatira, that was, those words are very significant. For most people in that city... If asked who was the son of God, they would have said Apollo, the son of Zeus. Jesus then describes himself as one whose eyes are like blazing fire. Jesus sees all. Jesus sees everything. There is no hiding from him. There is no doing deeds in the dark. There is no fooling him. Jesus knows if we are a Christian church tolerating sin. In verse 19, we learn that the church has actually been growing, growing in love, in faith, in service, in perseverance. But it's an important warning. Just because you are growing in these areas doesn't mean everything is all good. Growth does not necessarily mean healthy. Because now we get to verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So after Jesus first encourages the church and says, you're known for your love, your faith, your perseverance, for reaching those who do not know God, he says there is a problem. Jesus is saying, you are allowing people that you are reaching out to with the gospel to change the culture of the church. They are leading you astray. That woman Jezebel here is symbolic. It's someone or some people within the church that are leading others astray, leading others to compromise on their faith, 
Her sole goal is to move God out of the picture, to have people commit adultery against God. Historically, the person of Jezebel in the Bible was someone who wanted to remove the true God out of the nation of Israel. And this brings us to the main point of the letter for the church and for us. You can't have your cake and eat it as well. You can't be a Christian church and tolerate sin. Why? Because God is holy. God is perfect. God is blameless. And in his holiness, God does not tolerate sin. There is never a time when we sin, when we indulge in the practices of sin, and God looks down on us and smiles. It will never happen. Because God in his perfection does not tolerate sin. And as he looks down on the church, he looks down on us, he sees people growing in their faith, preaching Jesus, but also tolerating sin. And this is tricky for us, as we live in a time and a culture that preaches tolerance. Intolerance is intolerable. We live in a culture where we have to agree with everyone. So how do we follow a God whilst living in a culture that preaches tolerance, but we worship a God that does not tolerate sin? How do I reach a sinful world without falling into sin? Well, there is a difference between acceptance and approval. We want to be a church that no matter who walks in those doors, they are welcome here. They are accepted here with open arms, with open COVID-safe arms. But that does not mean we need to agree with everything about their lifestyle and about the way that they live their lives, let alone follow in their footsteps. We need to look no further than Jesus to understand this, because Jesus accepted everyone, but he did not agree with everyone. Jesus loved sinners, Jesus loved broken people, but he didn't agree with them. In, chapter, in John chapter 8, the famous story of throwing the first stone, Jesus said to the adulterer, after no one had thrown a stone, he says, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus doesn't leave us in our darkest place. Jesus doesn't leave us in a place of sin. He doesn't leave our, our, us as we are, but he tells us to leave that life behind. He accepts, but he doesn't agree. And for the church of Thyatira, they were accepting and approving of sin. How do we navigate this tricky world of tolerance and not tolerating sin? Well, we need to learn to show grace and truth. We need to walk with people alongside them, helping them, but continually pointing them to Jesus. Help them walking in a different direction because there is judgment. Verse 21 to 23, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I'll cast her on a bed of suffering and will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. 
We cannot be a Christian church and tolerate sin. Jesus makes that clear. We see the side here of Jesus that we like to pretend doesn't exist. We like loving, gracious, kind Jesus. The Jesus that lets us live our lives the way we want to live our lives. But Jesus, like God, is holy and he does not tolerate sin. There is no room for Christian living and tolerating sin. So let me ask you, are we a church that tolerates sin? Are we tolerating sin in our lives? What sins are you letting hang around in your life? Because as a church and as individuals, there is no room for tolerating sin in our lives. Let's finish with an encouragement. Verse 24 and 25. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have learned Satan's so-called and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To those who do not hold on to false teaching, who do not tolerate sin, and to those who hold on to Jesus, then Jesus will continue to hold on to you. How do we hold on? We cling to him. We cling to his word for dear life. We hang on to him as if it is truly our lifeline, the thing keeping us alive. Could you imagine you're drowning at sea and being thrown a rope? How tightly would you hold on to that rope? You would hold on for dear life. Are you holding on to Jesus, his word, his teaching for dear life? Because that rope has been thrown to you. It is there. Treat it like cake. Take it and eat it too.